G'day there, guys, and welcome back to Blowing Cartridges, your not-so-standard video game podcast. I am your host, Zach Clark, joined by my fellow co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing on this fine week? Yeah, it's going well, Zach. I'm very glad to be back on air and uh, talking with you about gaming and gaming culture and our crazy, crazy thoughts. Yeah, no, it's good to be back um, another week. And, and our first real week, which is exciting. We're actually going to hit some, some topics we're really, really interested into. So how about we get stuck straight into it? So this is June, the month we're recording this in. Uh, and hopefully the month this is going up or close to it, maybe the start of July. Uh, and, and what normally happens in June, if you're a gaming enthusiast, you might have heard of a little event called E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo. An event that naturally, like most things this year in 2020, uh, got cancelled. And unlike some events, did not get replaced with an online version, but was just flat out, you know, put to put to the curb. But would normally be, I guess, what you would consider the 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 main video game industry event. It's been running since the '90s, and it's um, you know, where the majority of for years the majority of video game companies come to announce their new products for the at least the remainder of the year, uh, and then in many cases also for for years to come. Um, you know, it's been the site of console unveils, um, you know, new tech, um, you know, celebrities who have no purpose being there, uh, showing up on stage <laughs> to talk about their passion for, for a game that they probably didn't hear about until five minutes before. And it's been a, a massive spectacle. Um, Brendan, I'm a bit curious, wh- when did you sort of become aware that of this thing that was E3 and, and how did you sort of, you know, tune into it and, and enjoy it over the years? Honestly, it's it's one of those things that I think I've always sort of had an idea about it, and I think it was through reading video game magazines in the late 90s, well, more early 2000s for me, since I was, what, four or five in the late 90s, so I don't think I was doing much reading then. But yeah, I, I think it was very much through magazines and then through websites and internet forums that I started getting more and more exposed to E3, and the first conference I remember watching, I think, was 2011 Nintendo's E3 conference when Skyward Sword was announced and the 3DS was announced, or maybe it was 2010. So, Zach, how about yourself? When were you first exposed to E3? Probably not too dissimilar to you. Gaming magazines uh, always were a bit thicker around uh, July, uh, the July edition after everyone's been to E3. Plus, it might not have been July. I think E3 has moved around in the year, but let's just say July because I was a child and can't remember the exact dates. Um, and they'd be like, oh, big E3 exclusives, you know, all the hot deal, the new games, not deals. And that was, you know, when I became aware of it. Uh, and then, like all of us, eventually migrated to the internet. And for me, probably GameTrailers.com. I uh, initially sort of started with those, you'd sort of just see all these videos get uploaded of new trailers uh, with the E3 like logo in the in the bottom corner. And I, I would actually just sit there, you know, I'd get up, um, if say it was a school holidays or whatever, and I'd just sort of refresh the page and <laughs> just wait for new videos to come up and then I'd watch them. Uh, and if it was something I really liked, I'd watch them on repeat. Uh, and then, you know, through that, you see the clips of the conferences, uh, which led to me eventually figuring out, oh, these are a thing. I can watch live. Uh, I think it might have been 2000 and maybe seven or eight would have been my first one. I'm struggling to remember, but I definitely remember some some good and some bad E3s, um, particularly 
you know, at that age, I was, and I still am a massive Nintendo fan, but that at that age, I pretty much only had Nintendo systems. So uh, my, my E3s lived and died by the good ones. And I remember being there for the Wii Music Year <laughs> and, and the, you know, the crap that that was. Um, but also being there for, as you said, some great ones like that. Uh, the year the 3DS and Skyward Sword and all, and yeah, I think Donkey Kong Country Returns and stuff were also announced that year. Things like that, you know, getting up at 2 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time to watch was a real highlight. And and much like you said, also engaging with people online, like you know, as we said in our last episode, we met on internet forums, um, and and sort of posting on those forums or later even joining voice calls with people to live react together. It's been an absolute thrill, <laughs> thrill over the years. It's just that sort of one week that everyone I know that sort of indie games has something they, they find exciting to talk about, something new on the horizon for them. And it's sort of while it's, we can get, we'll get into it, it has waned maybe a bit over the last few years. It still kind of holds its spot as, uh, as I guess, the holy grail of um, video game events in, in many regards. I guess the point of this episode is not just to talk about E3, but to talk about video gaming journalism as a whole, because both you and I, Zach, we, I guess we were enthusiast video game journalists, amateur video game journalists. And I think all, both of our experiences with E3 is very much shaped by people actually going to E3, because ultimately th- E3 was, is for industry and, ju- and gaming journalists as well to, disseminate information to gamers and consumers people like us so i think it's very important to understand how that factors into e3 as an event so i guess for me my first interactions with video game journalism was as i said reading magazines in the early 2000s i fondly remember getting i believe it was nintendo gamer and cube magazine with the gamecube and reading those in the early 2000 2003 period and really loving flicking through and reading articles reading reviews looking at screenshots of games that were coming out games that didn't come out and even now occasionally i'll go back and flick through a dusty old box of magazines and reminisce about games that i always wanted to play but never quite got the chance to what was it like with for you um growing up zach what, what was your experience with that uh, gaming journalism well, well first off you have lodged an interesting you've yeah, brought up a memory that I completely forgot about. So obviously, like you, read read magazines, um, you know, Hyper, and um, uh, before that, it was unofficial Nintendo magazine. Then that got scrapped. I like a lot of Aussies swapped to Hyper. Um, I remember like Daniel Wilkes and stuff being really good um, journos there. And then shifted to the internet where I was primarily on on game trailers, um, listening to stuff like Invisible Walls and the guys there, sort of. Because there weren't too many opinion pieces there. There was a lot more just gameplay footage, but there were the, their podcasts did make for good and, and previews as well made for good things. Uh, and also me and, and some one of my you know closest mates, we love the E3 awards, you know, like a lot of uh, publications and websites did, you know, what best of E3, best shooter, best, you know, whatever. And like we'd argue about it, even though none of us played the games <laughs> ourselves, but it would just be fascinating <laughs> to figure out what's going to win. So that was kind of my exposure. But what you reminded me, and I have to look at it when I get back to my parents' place, so at some point, don't remember which, it was the year that Pikmin 2 was at E3. Uh, I know that because I, I have a DVD that I bought at an EB Games of E3. You bought it? Yeah, it's a it's a game, it was a Nintendo one. There was Nintendo, like a GameCube, Xbox, and PS2 DVDs. I just got the GameCube one because I didn't have a PS2 or an Xbox. And it's literally just a DVD of of trailers. And I remember, and that DVD honestly shaped my purchasing decisions. Um, because like I remember I bought this game called Gotcha Force, uh, which is a bit of a a niche um 
GameCube game uh, by Capcom, just because that, that trailer on that and the gameplay demo on that DVD. Oh, but such a weird time. Uh, and to look how we've evolved into, I mean, the concept of buying a, a magazine to read about things a month later seems weird, let alone a DVD, what must have been months and months later. But yeah, that's that's some of my early exposure uh, until I got to the point where probably much like you, it just kind of became all-consuming through <laughs> through various websites, various um social media feeds um you know these days i sort of absorb a ton of opinions of, of various you know professional journalists and and unprofessional as well uh just you know standard people commenting online because that's that of itself is interesting you mentioned watching that dvd and being convinced the buy got your force but as a whole how do you think it shaped your early history as a gamer and your perception of gaming as a whole as, as a form of entertainment so how do you think going on game trailers and hearing people's opinions about video games and seeing footage how, how did that shape you as a gamer and gaming in your life oh uh, i mean like i think a lot of us first off was the concept that oh people get paid to play games and write about them and, or talk about them which was exciting you know i've harsh reality as an adult you realize it's it's not uh, it has its challenges as a career but still as a kid that was very exciting but also i think it really separated so i mean i'm one of those people that hates the hates the divide between are you a gamer or a casual gamer or whatever i think that's you know i think more people than they realize a game is in the sense that they play games but i think that the kind of person like us and a lot of others that actively watch the news about games and pay attention to this stuff bought magazines back when we were younger or now are just reading you know dedicated enthusiast sites or sites just you know about games like ign or GameSpot or whatever that's that's kind of like our own separate little bubble of, of you know gaming culture i suppose um one i you know i would call ourselves game enthusiasts and that's that's who sort of fits into that category i think where you're you're not just like, oh, what's coming out and watch a couple of reviews on that and like, oh yeah, I'll pick that up or just buying Call of Duty every year and that's it. Um, you're actually paying attention to the industry, paying attention to everything that's coming out, even if it's something that you don't really, um, you know, you're not even going to play or buy. I mean, you know, I think we can both attest to, we watched quite a number of press conferences for companies which don't even put out a lot of product that you or I might personally enjoy, um, but we're just fascinated to see what they're going to show off, how they show it off, how they stuff it up. Sometimes is you know even even better. And then engaging in those conversations around the whole um, the whole industry piece, the marketing, the you know the strategy behind it. It's just a whole nother level of interest beyond just playing the games themselves. I don't know if you agree, but that's that's sort of my takeaway of you know observing E3 and other sort of conventions and journalism over the years in in the gaming space. I've always joked, especially in the last few years, that my experience with gaming in the early 2010s was very much, I, I talked more about gaming than actually gamed. I'd, I'd go on online forums like Aussie Nintendo and then Another Castle on NeoGAF on Nintendo World Report. I would talk about, oh, did you see that new trailer for Skyward Sword or oh, doesn't Metro Prime Federation's force look like absolute trash? Well, I was a defender of that game, but you get the point. I think I spent much more time engaging with other fellow gamers about gaming than actually gaming, and it it really shows the extra facet to gaming that the social element, that yes, you have social elements through multiplayer online gaming, local multiplayer games, but you also have a social interaction through discussing games and as you said i think we both are gaming enthusiasts and that's a part of our our experience as gaming enthusiasts is discussing games and it's one of the reasons why we created this podcast as well of course 
yeah, and it's it's been a an absolute wild ride, and it's and it's changed as well so much. I mean, I mean, you can already tell through this conversation, but you know, at one point we were writing in letters to gaming magazines and and hoping maybe we found friends at school to talk about stuff. Then we're on online forums like Aussie Nintendo and stuff. Now, just look at today. I, I think I've spent more time on Twitter or um, Discord talking about like for context, you know, a new Pokemon Snap game got announced today. Then, then I've actually spent playing uh, the new Pokemon DLC that came out because, because to me, talking about that announcement <laughs> has been way more fun than the idea of playing some new actual Pokemon video game content, which um, I think goes to show you the kind of uh, enjoyment we find of this of this whole journalism or, or just industry, I guess, analysis and, and engagement, which has been really, really fantastic. Well, we've alluded to it a lot in the last episode and this episode especially, but we both have a deep history in writing about games and participating as staff members on a number of different websites covering games and gaming culture. So I guess we should probably dive in a bit deeper and discuss our respective histories. So let's start with you, Zach. How did you find yourself writing about video games instead of reading about them? Uh, I think like a lot of people, uh, first steps was dabbling in, in really amateur stuff in, in a way. So I remember when I was quite young, uh, my friend had an amateur blog uh, and I did a couple of you know reviews for, for him, uh, including a, a Metroid Other M review, uh, which which is quite a um, controversial game, we'll say. Gave it a seven. Uh, and I remember a site that I followed a lot and will be relevant later, Go Nintendo, which I think is one of the largest uh nintendo sort of fan sites they pretty much aggregate manually anything nintendo related so i emailed them my review so hoping that they would post it you know on their site and they did and i just remember reading the comments of very at the time well in hindsight it would be surprised you'd be surprised to hear defensive fans of that game who are very upset that i only <laughs> gave it a seven uh, i think if i posted a seven review today for that game it'd I get you know flambasted for taking money from Nintendo for, <laughs> for for that exact same opinion. But either way, following that, and, and I sort of like and like you engaged in a lot of forums and would do sort of long form posts on there. Uh, I don't, I don't remind me. I don't think Aussie Nintendo had blogs necessarily, or maybe it did. I think I think actually it did. I did a couple it, it of did. blogs on Aussie Nintendo, uh, and then later another castle as well. Um, just various topics. It, it was one thing, but I think probably my first opportunity into if you want to call it professional game journalism i use that word loosely because at no point in my gaming journalism career have i ever made any income it's all been on a voluntary or basis for for the most part but i got a a writing gig with go nintendo what go nintendo is is is, as i said it's a fan site that tries to aggregate pretty much any sort of news about nintendo whether that's the new barbie game coming out for ds or (laughs) it's you know super mario's latest game anything at all on the spectrum they'll they'll try and post it so it's uh very much a volume sort of game uh they were looking to transition to into a 24-hour cycle and we're looking for somebody to cover what would be their night shift. They're based out of the, the USA. Uh, and I was working, uh, I think I just finished uni. I was working uh, full-time in retail in video games, selling games. Uh, and I figured that the hours of the shift, which was something like 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. roughly, were, were sort of workable with my lifestyle. So I thought I'd, I'd you know, throw my hat in the ring and, and through the application process got selected. For most of that work, it wasn't a lot of hardcore journalism. It was a lot of 
literally I'd have like a, a Google Chrome uh, application window open with maybe 30 tabs of various sites and just sort of cycling through them, refreshing uh, to just see if anything new Nintendo related that had not already been covered got posted. And there was a lot of fan art, a lot of uh, uh, random, you know, just bits and bobs. Um, I remember freaking out one day because I think it was a, a Wii U eShop game got announced called Bombing Bastards. And I was, I posted about it, but then I emailed the site and I being like, I don't know if if you're okay with the word bastards being <laughs> being there. It's kind of like a, a pseudo swear word on a, on a family-friendly site. Uh, but I made the executive call that it's accurate, so I just did it. And he said, yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, you did the right thing. You know, so things like that. But through that, I also tried to flex my reviewing or journalism muscles, I guess, uh, and, and did sort of take some opportunities to reach out to some indies and, and grab some review copies of some games and do some interviews. So I remember I got a review copy of SteamWorld Dig on the Wii U and did a review of that. A uh, bit of an easy review because luckily a very short game but also a game that already existed on other platforms. So it was a lot of just trying to say why you may or may want to buy it on Wii U rather than um, 3DS and whatever else it might have been on at the time. And I also did an interview with a with a local Aussie developer uh, whose name, honestly, the development team's escaping me. I know it's the Stark family in Queensland who put together Ninja Pizza Girl, which had a Kickstarter around that time. And I, I thought to interview them because I'm like, you know, more exposure for Aussies is always a good thing. Plus, you know, again, just trying to really contribute more than just copying and pasting links onto a website. So that was that was a solid... I reckon I did that for about six months before uh, we both sort of mutually came to an agreement that he needed someone to dedicate more time and effort to that role than I was willing to do with my life for, uh, for free. Um, you know, if I was going to bed any later, work in, in the daytime was going to become pretty unmanageable. Uh, and I was also about to start studying again. So it just didn't all, you know, make sense uh, for either of us for me to keep doing it. But I definitely appreciated that opportunity. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and that would lead on to my second opportunity, again, also on a pro bono basis, which was uh, working through Rocket Chainsaw, which is still uh, around an Aussie you know, video game coverage site started by XPELGN staffers. Uh, I came through that just through a, a colleague at work who is one of those ex-staffers, uh, just sort of said, hey, do you want to take a crack writing for our site? And I said, well, why not? Because I enjoy it. And over the years, probably did maybe, I don't know, it wouldn't have been a ton, but maybe six or seven reviews for them. Mostly stuff, a mix of stuff I bought. Like I remember I did a Yoshi's Woolly World and Splatoon reviews, but I just paid for those. Uh, and then also a couple of times I'd be given review codes, which was fantastic. So there's a few things, mostly Bandai Namco stuff from memory, like uh, One Piece games, uh, some Digi a Digimon game, Digimon Cyber Sleuth, which I really enjoyed. You know, side note, reviewing RPGs in a short period of time, uh, when it's not your full-time job, uh, as much as those games can be good and enjoyable, very hard, very long <laughs> games, uh, and very hard to know when you've done enough, even if you beat the the story, you know, have you really done enough to write a good review? I don't know. It, it's a, That's a whole other topic you could talk about with how much do you need to play a game to, <laughs> to know if you can actually review it. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a challenge. And they also really were really good in sort of helping me hone my or try to hone my writing ability. I still think I'm pretty crap, but with give me a lot of advice, do a lot of rework and editing of my of my pieces and that helped me to see what it's kind of like working for a professional uh review site. 
uh, which was which was very cool. But anyway, that's sort of a bit of a history of my my gaming journalism. Probably stopped around that twenty in mid to late twenty sixteen was probably when I sort of fell off the bandwagon uh, again. You know, just life getting busy, and, and again, when it's not your full time job, it, it gets hard to to summon the energy after hours to do it all. Uh, and until today, when we we've picked up the mantle again with this podcast. But what about yourself, Brendan? I mean, I obviously know a bit of your history, but why don't you give the audience a bit of a, a bit of a rundown of your experience? I think you've been there for the entire journey, Zach, from start to finish. As I've muddled my way through video game journalism as a volunteer amateur. So we were both members of another castle from Inception since we carried on from Aussie Nintendo, which was the predecessor website of Another Castle, and I guess that's where we first met, well, virtually met anyway, on Aussie Nintendo. And like you, I was a poster on Another Castle for its first two, three years of existence, and it was around the 2015 period that they had a lot of website problems. I believe they hired a guy to update the website servers and he didn't back it up and what he produced wasn't what the site owners, the people who ran the site, wanted. So they decided to try to jettison the changes and revert back to the old system. But since it wasn't backed up, there wasn't really much to revert to. And during that process, a lot of the staff writers and the people who contributed to that website, they deserted the website. Well, I guess not deserted, they left the website because of all those issues. A lot of the forum goers and forum members also stopped going because it was, I believe we called it the backslash curse after, it was either every comma or apostrophe you wrote on the website, it would replace it with a backslash and it was something to do with the coding of the website and it it just led to an absolute mess. It, It looked awful and no one was quite happy. So during that period, a guy called Dave, who is a good friend of ours and he was on the staff. He he took the burden on and he decided to try to resurrect the website. And it was around E3 2015 that he was making a big push to get things moving again. And during that period, I raised my hand and I think it was in the Skype chat for the website we had. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll help you out, mate. And that, that was my start. What I did for another castle was, I, I believe my title was news editor. So I would curate news articles that we chucked up on the front page and I I was also involved in I guess the PR management side of the website so reaching out to publishers and procured I guess game codes for review and also got onto their mailing list so I could get information to post up as news articles. I also became a reviews editor as well so through procuring those codes I also matched them to reviewers that we frantically tried to get and I probably wasn't the best at holding people to account and getting people to review games because personally I was also doing all this stuff at the same time. I was also saying, oh, yes, I will review games as well. But I don't think I reviewed nearly half the games I committed to reviewing. It it got quite tough at times when you're the person that's supposed to keep people in line and keep people holding to deadlines when you don't really hold those deadlines either. So I did that for about two, three years. So it was around the end of 2016 that the decision was made to wound up another castle since it was was a bit of a struggle for the two years I was involved in it. We never quite got the traffic we wanted. We never quite got the amount of contributors we wanted. And the forum of the website, which I guess was the heart and soul of the website, the forum and our community was slowly dying and slowly, I guess, fading away. We very much had the same core of about five, ten members who would post in our Skype chat, Discord chat anyway. So 
we decided it was time to stop paying server fees and wind it up. And I think you you were you were there during this entire journey, weren't you, Zach? Yeah, definitely. I, I was. Uh, I dropped in and out of the Skype chat from time to time, but I definitely um, paid attention to the website when, whenever people posted there. Uh, and yeah, it was fun to fun to watch. Uh, you know, I think I did a couple of blog posts on there, uh, and similarly, I think joined you guys for your your podcasts every now and then, which was a ton of fun. Um, and again, big reason why this is happening. Uh, and yeah, again, all I can say is, and much like a lot of these fan run sites. You guys did a great job, I reckon, all things considered with the, the resources you had. And again, it was all done out of passion and with no you know, monetary re- reward or anything at the end of the day. It was, and in your spare time, like you were studying. Uh, I don't know if you had a part-time job, I'm not sure, but you were at the very least doing your degree, which, which you know, is a lot of time and effort and then do this on the side. It's It goes to show you the, the love of you and the other guys and, you know, another castle and heroes of play uh as it as it became well, evolved into which which in and of itself is sort of dead i think at the moment uh correct me if i'm wrong there hasn't been anything on that front for i believe a couple of years unfortunately yeah unfortunately but i guess at the end of the day the main reason we do this uh, i don't know if you want to agree or not is that we do this out of our own spare time and often money as well because we do want to connect with the wider audience. I especially felt that at Another Castle when we knew a lot of the forum goers. We met them at PAX and Nintendo Connectivity events and we grew to become friends with people. So it very much becomes, a, I guess, a give and take where you're interacting with the community. How was it for you on a site like Go Nintendo where communicating with the audience was very much restricted to a comments section? You mentioned earlier that you got abused for your Metroid Other M review. How was that when it was a website that you don't quite have the interaction so i remember when i started with go nintendo i was told you must use twitter <laughs> so that, that at the time was already taking place as that is the uh community interaction sort of element if you want to engage with it in any meaningful way but similarly go nintendo had a comments feel i think rocket chainsaw did as well but probably just didn't get the same level of comments per se and the way the interaction wasn't quite the same as something like in another castle or an Aussie Nintendo where, again, maybe because it's local or maybe because it's a smaller, tighter-knit community where we sort of got to know each other quite well, it definitely felt a lot more one way uh, and uh, in many respects. Uh, you know, people would comment at me and I might respond, but, you know, I was careful never to be too controversial other than you know a metroid other m review which is controversial <laughs> no matter what you do uh the baby the baby the <laughs> uh, the baby um adam what was his name adam something anyway um <laughs> adam melkovich i think anyway it it's it was yeah definitely a bit of a one-way sort of street and not because i wasn't interested but but when i started naturally got a lot of not a lot but more people than i'd ever had following me on twitter um, still under a thousand, so you know, not we're not talking sheep stations here, but <laughs> a whole lot of strangers that I never interacted before follow me, and I still follow them back to this day. And there's a couple that I'll interact with just through likes or, or you know, the occasional comment, uh, which has been nice, honestly. And honestly, I haven't stopped using Twitter to this day. It re- that really sparked me using it actively, and have continued to do so. That was kind of what it was like. It was a lot of just I post stuff. People comment on it. I sometimes respond. Sometimes I don't. It's pretty much it. And it's also just because you're exhausted. You spend all your time posting. You're not too energized to, to sit there commenting and, 
and really delving deep into that. Um, so it didn't quite satisfy the same community element that, again, we got from, say, in another castle uh, or being on podcasts, but it definitely did sort of scratch some other itches of just sort of, you know, it's nice to, to get your opinion out there, uh, I find at least. And even if people don't like that opinion, I still sometimes just enjoy, you know, people took the time to, to listen or read or whatever it is. It's, you know, that's kind of helps validate, not validate, it's probably the wrong word, but just makes you feel, you know, all this, this time we spend discussing and analyzing games and the industries, <laughs> uh, not to say it's wasted, but it feels like you're putting it more to a more productive use, I suppose, by putting something out there for people to engage with. That makes me think about ultimately why we were both doing it and we spent a considerable amount of time and effort into it. And it makes me think of how do we measure success when we're not the next IGN? I guess another castle, there were some people that hoped we would be the next IGN, but it was never really realistic. And I guess probably more relevant to your experience with Rocket Chainsaw than uh, with Go Nintendo. But how did you find fulfillment through writing these articles when and reviews when not that many people would necessarily view them. Did you ever feel that you were putting more effort in than you were getting out? For me personally, it never bothered me. Um, I don't know why. It never really took a lot of attention to site traffic or anything like that. Uh, other people did in, at the site. Uh, they, they followed it quite closely, uh, particularly the site owners, obviously. <laughs> they, they were very keen. Uh, for me, I wasn't too fussed about that. I was more interested in... Do people like it and are people commenting on it? Uh, and even, honestly, I was, uh, maybe even today, I'm just happy if only a handful of people make any sort of comments or engagement with it. Uh, in terms of measuring it as a success, I sort of am beyond the point where I need to, to be a success, I suppose. Um, it's different, I think, if we were actively pursuing it in a career aspect where we need those numbers to be able to help propel that career in, in many regards and break in uh, to a site like an IGN or, or for our site to grow to a point where it makes enough money that you could sort of live. This was very much just like, and you're doing it because you enjoy it. And to be fair, I'm not knocking anyone that, that does it for pay. That's, you know, they're, they're just very good and they've earned their spot. And similarly, I'm not saying anyone that enjoys games has to do something uh, like this to justify playing games you just play games for fun that's that's perfectly fine having fun is a valid use of your time <laughs> exactly but that's just where we have found our fun was writing and talking about stuff it, it is a type of fun for us and that's why we we ended up doing it exactly though one of the issues that i often found myself in is i guess for lack of a better term having writer's block or just a lack of motivation and i often found it hard to keep going and sit down and write a review or sit down and tell someone, oh, you need to write this review when, yeah, it was feeling more like a job than a hobby. Did, did you ever have that experience and how did you overcome it? Because I think it ultimately it was one of the reasons why my involvement and engagement with another castle probably wasn't as high as it should have been despite all the different roles I had and why Heroes of Play never really got off the ground because we couldn't get everyone to buy in and stay motivated because it's very hard to do when everyone's doing it in their spare time and as a hobby and not a job to answer your question yes i had that experience uh and did i to cut to the end quickly it would say i don't know if i really did succumb overmount it uh, completely uh probably the times i felt the most uh frustrated at any point was 
uh, I, I say this not in a, an against in any any individual person way, but like uh, as I said, Rocket Chainsaw, fantastic, some very good writers and editors, like genuinely mean that bottom of my heart. And so they would, you know, give you so much advice on how to rework a review or maybe a news article, whatever you're writing, to try and improve it. Uh, and sometimes that means you do a few cuts, which is good, and that's what you need to get better, right? But honestly. It's also sometimes as someone who was doing it for, you know, the love of it and didn't have the, it wasn't like a job, but was starting to feel like a job in, in, at points when you'd have to rework a review three or four times uh, in your spare time. And you're just like, I just want to play games or I just want to go do something else. I, I don't really want to sit here and rewrite this thing on my, my night off or my day off. Uh, it, it really wore me down. Uh, and I think it sort of is, again, why I sort of burnt out on it, I suppose. Uh, and again, not to, again, 100%, that's not a knock to the people there. They're doing their job really well. It's just reflective of what I wanted to get out of it, which was more just, I just want to spurt my opinion out there. I don't really care if I make too many typos or things like that. I just It's not the level of professionalism that I wanted to achieve my, for myself because it, it, it just sort of took the fun out of it if I was, again, having to edit things multiple, multiple, multiple times. And as you said, starts to feel more like a job and less like this fun hobby that you're engaging in. A lot of what we've been talking about in the last five minutes, I guess, could be construed as very negative. But I think it's safe to say we've both had some fantastic memories through our experiences, video game journalists on an amateur enthusiast level. So I think some of my favourite ones is very much the interplay between the staff writers on another castle and building those friendships and just... There's a lot of memories and a lot of in-jokes. Like the other month, one of my fellow writers, a shout-out to Will Unicycles, he decided to send me a Steam code for the game Criminal Girls because a long, long time ago on Another Castle, as you mentioned earlier, Namco Bandai used to be fantastic at giving out review codes. And the great thing about Namco Bandai Australia is they also distribute for Square Enix. So they would often send out their email for an upcoming game and ask you or do you want a review code for that so i often got review codes uh, for their games and they also covered uh, nisa america's games and in that whole hodgepodge of games they covered criminal girls was there which was this bizarre very japanese very otaku vita game and will will was a very big fan of the vita so i decided to throw it his way and he did not have a great time with that game I believe the review is still out there somewhere. He'd have it anyway, and he wasn't very appreciative of that game, and it became a bit of an in-joke that I forced him to play Criminal Girls. So he's now passed that back to me, and I think someday I'm going to have to sit down and play that and write my own thoughts about that and how I'm no longer friends with Will. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to end a friendship. Well, exactly, through Criminal Girls. So I guess what what are some of your favourite memories we can use this to lead into our next discussion, which is, of course, E3. I know through Rocket Chainsaw, you had the opportunity to go over to the America for one E3. Was that your favourite memory, or do you have others? I mean, it, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's probably my favourite from a from a coverage perspective, for sure. I mean, so yeah, I'm talking a bit how, how it all came around. So probably in around Feb or Jan Feb of 2016, uh, a couple of the guys uh, who, who run the site... Adam and Andrew were mentioning, oh, who wants to go to E3? You know, Adam applied and he's going to go. And 
Andrew's like, oh, I'll apply as well. And I think it was, was his first E3 as well. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just apply. See what happens. If I get rejected, it is what it is. If I get accepted, I'll go. Uh, and, and E3 uh, accepted my credentials, which was, was amazing. So, you know, booked a week of leave, booked my flights, booked a hotel room with, with them, and, uh, and flew over in, in June 2016. So, for context, that was the Zelda Breath of the Wild year for Nintendo and it was like the God of War Spider-Man year for Sony trying to remember Microsoft the main thing I remember was Forza being set in Australia because I was like "Woo, Australia uh, in the crowd but I can't remember what they announced so apologies Microsoft I've, I've let you down did they announce uh, Halo Infinite that year I know it's still or was there oh, a Halo game was it there might have been a Halo game it might have been Halo 5 uh, I honestly don't I don't remember what the big... Um, I remember Tekken was at their conference. Goes to show you what games really uh, were as value. I'm pretty sure Dragon Dragon Scale or whatever it was, the Platinum game. Scalebound. Scalebound, Scalebound. Yeah, sorry. That was that was not its first showing, but it was still there. So there was, you know, definitely some memorable moments. But yeah, so flew over there. Again, just for the record, again, all on my own, own dime. And sort of got a taste of what, going to e3 is like and it, it was fantastic uh luckily through adam and the and rocket chainsaw's connections we were able to get into all the press conferences which which were a spectacle you know of themselves you know they're, they're like a stage show uh with a party going on at the start and the end is you know food like i remember sony had like a donut wall bethesda's party was the best by far they had blink 182 playing um in and out burgers uh giant turkey legs for, for to eat it was it was quite fantastic what was that like being there with the multitude of people and oh it's it, it's surreal in a way because you spend years as a kid or a teenager watching these things online and getting to be there in the crowd and feed off the energy of like again coming back to it i don't care about a lot of bethesda games if i'm being honest with you don't play almost any of them but when you're in a crowd of some real enthusiastic Bethesda fans screaming for Elder Scrolls Online or Fallout VR or whatever else it was that year, it's you can't help but feel excited for them and, and, and with them in many respects. There's naturally also a bit of the starstruck element where, again, this is very nerdy, but I think you would feel the same if you, if you saw this, uh, Brendan, but when you see like a Pete Hines or a Todd Howard uh, Reggie Fizeme or uh, you know Sean, was it Sean Layden then I think it was yes it would have been uh, Phil Spencer yeah all, all these video game execs that sh- which shouldn't be celebrities but for, for for me they're basically the equivalent of celebrities um, you know one of my my favorite I've got a few good photos but I, my favorites was I think a, a day or two before the actual show started we were having burgers at uh, Fat Burger I think no Smash Burger that's it. And uh, Bill Trinan walks in, and I'm like, "Oh my god, it's Bill Trinan!" And I, you know, go ask, "Can I have a photo?" He sees I'm wearing a Pax Oz shirt, so we start talking about Australia because it's his. If you follow him on Twitter, you know it's one of his favorite tourist destinations. Things like that were just so surreal and, and exciting to see these people in the flesh and see this thing I've watched on on video for so many years in person. It was it was amazing. He really loves it, Australia, doesn't he? I I heard him on IGN's podcast the other month for their i think it was their 100th or 200th or what have you episode and he was talking about animal crossing and they asked him oh what what animal do you want in animal crossing and he mentioned oh yeah i, I, I want a koala friend he, he really likes australia 
Yeah, he does. He's a big, um, from what I can tell, again, just purely off Twitter, he's a big skier and he liked our ski fields, even though that's odd for Australia, but also just nature. I think he likes nature walks and stuff. And we do have some great, you know, scenery, so I can see why uh, an American or whatever would also would love it. Um, not to say I don't love it myself, but yeah. So anyway, the point is, uh, it's it's a whole sort of hype train of these sort of parties and press conferences and very much to be clear these are things you either need to have a connection with a pr agent of of these companies to get in which again luckily adam and rocket chainsaw did or alternatively uh they usually have had some space left over for fans which they would either have a system for dedicating you know who these fans are and how they get in like xbox has a a very um well-established fan uh system let's call it or it would also just be okay We've got all the journos in. Uh, there's still, you know, a hundred seats left. Okay, everyone that's lined up, you can get in, kind of thing, which is very cool. Was this the first G that E3 was open to the public as a whole, not just press conferences, but the expo? Mm-hmm. No, it was the year before that, so it was the last year before E3 was open to the public. With that said, from what I understand and what I sort of gained from talking to just people there. The credentials element of just getting into E3 is not that hard. Again, very. If you have a some sort of blog or fan site, uh, and by that point, even like sort of moderate, or I wouldn't even say moderate, but small sized YouTube following, or probably even Twitch, you could probably get in somehow. The real challenge, which which you'll find when you get in, is it's like a lot of conventions. E3 is busy massive crowds lines that are just in, insane when you get inside if you want to play you know uh the legend of zelda breath of the wild you either need to be there from dawn to get into the convention and be the first one in and then run to get to nintendo's booth to be first in line or you are potentially waiting all day or just not going to play it at all because you missed out if you, if you didn't go straight to that booth and straight to the queue uh, which, if you look at any videos from that E3, the amount of setups they had, given that their booth that year was dedicated to that one single game, only shows goes to show you how many people were lining up to play it and give it a crack. I remember watching videos of the the crowd of people running for the Breath of the Wild stand when uh when the, the gates would open every each morning for E3 that year. So you actually got to live that. Did, did you get a chance to actually play Breath of the Wild that year? Yeah, so that's that's where I think the credentials and the connections actually matter more than the getting in element. Uh, again, Adam, through having connections to various uh, local Aussie branches of video game companies, was able to tee up our own pers- time to try Breath of the Wild, uh, which he very kindly gave to me, and I'm very thankful to him <laughs> and Andrew for, for letting me have a crack at it. So we didn't have to line up. We just had a time. We were told come at whatever it was two o'clock on a particular day of the show, and uh, one of the Nintendo Australia staff members would walk us through the game and let us try it out. So that was fantastic. So it meant you know you can spend the rest of your free time. To be honest, most of our time we're doing interviews or or at other appointments like this. But if you had the free time, you could pick and choose. Okay, well I didn't get an appointment to play I don't know, something at Xbox. I'll use my time to line up and give that a shot. Uh, and that's the only way. If you if you don't have an ability and a connection to make those appointments, you are not going to have uh, an E3 where you play a lot of games. So that's, if I'm being honest with you, you're going to have an E3 where you play 
maybe two or three a day at most. Maybe more if you're willing to not go for the heavy hitters. So very lucky in that sense. Yeah, so I was about to ask, was there smaller games and smaller publishers where there wasn't that crowd and it was much easier to just walk up and try a game and play a demo? Or was, I guess, was it so busy that I guess every area of the hall was hectic? No, there's definitely smaller stuff. Obviously, there's an indie area and there are some stuff there that is overlooked and easy to go play and it's good stuff. So you should definitely, if you ever go to E3, check it out. Not as good, if I'm being honest, as even Paxos is in the area, but still solid. Then there are the small publishers. I remember I played some weird snowboarding game from a publisher that I don't even know. I think they still exist, but it's one of those sort of, like what you would consider a, a maybe a B-grade or C-grade sort of publisher. Um, you know, they'll be there trying to get people to try out these games that I don't think ultimately sell well. I remember Natsume were there and... They had moderate-sized lines for things like the new Harvest Moon or some new fishing game, and really what propelled their lines was people trying to get the merch more than it was the uh, games themselves. Sega, for example, were hit and miss. Uh, some games, uh, like Yakuza, had big queues. Other games, uh, like I think it was Rock of Ages, either one or two, was, was quite small. Uh, again, what sort of propelled people to really go through those games was collecting the stamp to get a uh, Persona 5 uh, Morgana hat, even though you can play Persona 5. So merch also really drove what people were playing, you know, as, as various uh, smaller publishers that relied on sort of the swag of like, oh, come play our game and you can get this cool thing. Uh, they used that to their advantage to, to pull in the masses. So what was your favourite memory of E3 2016? Was it Breath of the Wild or was it another experience you really enjoyed and I guess, would you ever be tempted to go back to E3 or is it the sort of thing that you've done it once, you've experienced it and it's better to leave it in that fond part of your memory and not, not try to dilute it by going back again? Hmm. To answer your first question, it, it probably, I won't say it was, I mean, playing Breath of the Wild was fun, but I think to me, uh, probably the most exciting thing was, was meeting um, Charles Martinet, who's the voice of Mario, um, which he came to Australia and I never got to meet him when he when he did come because I think he did a signing on a school day. <laughs> I could not convince mum to let me take the day off. Hey mum, mum, Mario's at the shopping centre. I really need to go down and get a signature, please. Yeah, that was pretty much my argument and it didn't work. Uh, so getting to meet him and, and get his autograph and a photo was, was fantastic. Uh, and really it's those things, meeting not just them, like people from sites I watch like Easy Allies and uh ign and things like that just sort of meeting them and even just for a second saying hey i really like your stuff and you know and for some of them taking a photo was was really the the highlights i suppose uh would i do it again very mixed bag i i would not do it again so put it this way i would not choose to fly out to la which is an expensive thing just to do it again if i didn't have appointments like again if i had to fight for my way to play the games I don't think it's worth it, uh, and particularly when you add on that cost of, of getting there and staying at a hotel. But then even if I would have to do, if I was to do what I did again, I, I don't know if I would. Uh, I guess coming back to what we were talking about much earlier, the job element of it, to cover that show well, it is very tiring and hard. You know, you spend all day at the show either playing games or, or watching demos by developers um, or interviewing people and then you get back to your hotel room and you want to smash out a few 
um, articles before you go to a industry event or out to dinner or whatever it is. Uh, and it's very tiring and it's very stressful. And I'll be honest, I was no good at it. If I was a working from a professional outlet, I tell you what, I would have got fired. I I feel bad <laughs> for some of the... Uh, I did some good work, don't get me wrong. I think my Breath of the Wild preview was pretty good. Um, but I remember, for, for example, I really stuffed up a Mafia article where it was Mafia 3. I went to the developer demo of it and I don't know how... I, I was obviously wasn't paying enough attention, but I just wrote a bunch of details down wrong in my notes, and then that came through in the article, and then 2K picked it up and said, oh, you guys have got a few of the names wrong of the characters, you mix them up, or this and that. And I'm like, man, I, I felt horrible. Uh, and I, and I you know, really, in my view, I, I really let the team down uh, in, in some respects, whereas Adam and and particularly Andrew, both of them, they're just machines. They, they, they pumped out articles like nobody's business. They are some talented writers. And again, just a quick shout out to them. You should go check out Rocket Chainsaw if you, you know, add it to your rotation of gaming sites to, to read if you don't um, or already have it on there. It's a it's a very good outfit and a very good website. And those those two are very good writers and editors. Whereas I just, I just struggled. Like I was just so tired. And for me to concentrate and then pump out an article uh, on that little sleep was was not something I'm good at. And so to that extent, if I the only way I was getting these bookings was to then mean I had to write a lengthy piece or a lengthy article. Probably not. If the answer was, okay, you could go play all these games, you don't have to line up in queue, and then I could record a podcast, <laughs> and I'm also <laughs> not the one that has to edit it, uh, maybe I'd say yes then, because if you just have to sit in the mic and talk, it's, it's a little bit easier, a little less stressful in general. So would really depend on what my what the expectation is of me post the you know appointments. So what you're saying is you're not going to be on two K's Christmas card list anytime soon. No, no, no. Um, probably blacklisted if uh, if they even cared to know who I was uh, <laughs> in the first place. Uh, and again, to that to that PR rep, again, all I can do is apologise. Uh, in I'm only what four years too late, but that <laughs> <laughs> is what it is. I think I would have apologised at the time. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely like you you know when you hear people talk about how tough E3 is, like the again journos and how they hate it because it's the worst time of year. I mean, it's it's probably quite true when you have to do it as a job. It must be incredibly stressful and incredibly challenging. I mean, a lot of us work jobs where there's like a seasonal sort of stressful period. You know, if you work retail, that's Christmas and, and Boxing Day and that kind of stuff. This must be that. This is that for gaming journalism. I. I it just be so challenging and so little sleep and so much again this is where the passion even though they're getting paid you know that they're passionate about it because they're doing some really impressive work on very little energy and very little um you know sleep and food and that kind of stuff so uh it's it's definitely a spectacle something you know i would to someone like you brendan if you get the chance i would say do it because you should try it once if you get the opportunity if e3 comes back which i think it is next year for for all accounts but again, not necessarily something I'd say make it a regular thing and if, if, you, if you're not going to pursue it as a career. But Brendan, well, I know you haven't uh, had a chance to go to an overseas convention. I know that you both as a, as a fan and as a, as a journalist have covered at least a local one in the form of PAX Australia or PAX Oz at least uh, one, maybe two years if I, if I recall correctly. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about your experience there and what you thought of it? Well, I actually did almost get very close to going to Gamescom last year as just a spectator, as a fan, but 
because I was living overseas in Scotland, but it clashed with my dissertation writing period. I was very much friend. I'm the sort of person that leaves things to the very last minute. So I spent the last two hours of the deadline finishing that dissertation, but that's another topic for another day. Yes, you're right. I covered PAX twice, once in 2015 with Another Castle and once in 2017 with Heroes of Play. It was one of the main things Heroes of Play did before we became dormant, which is the state of that website at the moment. And I very much enjoyed PAX because, as you know, through attending PAX and you're an enforcer at PAX, you're very much a part of the process of PAX at a, at a background-based level. It's very much more of an intimate I guess, community and an intimate experience with a lot of local fans of video games getting in there, playing indie games, getting a glimpse of the next major international release for Microsoft, Xbox, Nintendo, what have you. And I very much enjoyed those two years of covering it. And I've attended PAX as a attendee, I think every PAX except the one year I was overseas. And covering PAX was a great experience just through getting to talk to those indie developers the Australian indie community is absolutely fantastic and just getting the chance to sit down with them and talking about their experiences creating their games and the overall development community in Australia was such a great experience and it's something I very much enjoy doing every year when I go to PAX even if I'm not covering it for a website. For those who are interested those videos of the interviews we did at PAX in 2015 and 2017 are still out on YouTube so definitely go and check those out we we did a very good interview with hollow knight actually because one of our writers case he's he's from adelaide and he's actually friends with the development team of hollow knight uh, team cherry and and the footage we did for that actually popped up a couple of weeks ago in some random youtube video on hollow knight and it was posted in our old uh, discord chat that's still going for the former aussie nintendo another castle exiles and we had a good laugh over that some of us seeing case just pop up in the another castle t-shirt it was very much a blast from the past yeah i agree paxol's fantastic event i've never done it from a, a media or journalist perspective but as uh, as you said as a fan who, and also as someone who's enforced there you know i love it it's got a very despite its size a very sort of family kind of feel going on the indies are fantastic it's so fun to talk to those developers and play those games uh and of course you do have the spectacle of uh you know pretty much the same set of demos you get at e3 anyway without you know having to go to la which is fantastic as well like last year was you know such a great suite of games to to give a shot if you only really care or your your draw card is the the triple a stuff uh and also a fun event for i don't know about you but i got massively into board games through pax was was one of the big drivers and really exploring that part of gaming which i don't know if it counts as video games but you know they they feel adjacent these days uh so yeah it's, it's a great event and um yeah i think if you can't it's sort of unfortunate that it's not in more parts of the world but if you can find an event like it uh it, it's definitely worth trying to check out what other local conventions you may have available to you or you know fly it down to australia next time uh paxos is on which uh i think we learned this week is sadly not going to be this year uh like a lot of events just just got cancelled and transitioning to a bit of a online version which which i think brings us i don't know to your, our next topic brendan which is uh you know as a result of you know covid19 uh, a lot of organizations have taken the correct decision of of transitioning to an online format uh e3 was cancelled and it's been sort of 
replaced by a few things, but either run by publishers or you know IGN's running their Summer Games Fest. Jeff Keighley, who runs the Game Awards, is doing a, a similar sort of Summer Games uh, event as well. Uh, and then things like PAX, we found out this week, um, are doing a PAX Online, which is very exciting, sort of merging PAX West, PAX Oz, uh, and their non-PAX branded, but still run by the same company, EGX in the UK, into one sort of big nine-day online event, uh, which, is, which is very different. But I, I'm curious to see how you feel, you know. We've had, we've had probably two weeks now or maybe a bit longer of, of a few online events. How, how are you feel, liking them so far? How do they compare to the traditional you know, events that we're, we're used to experiencing for you, Brendan? Honestly, I found the recent events quite hollow and I haven't really been paying attention to many of them. Well, I, I watched the PlayStation 1 to get a glimpse of the PS5 and the games being announced for it, even though I probably won't be picking one up for a couple of years. But it just doesn't have the same feeling without... E3, you know, it was always that second, third week of June, you'd mark it down in your calendars, you might take some time off work or skirt some uni assignments so you can stay up overnight and watch conferences and videos, but it's just had an entirely different feeling this year, and I think it's because all these games have been delayed out to next year, and we all know development has been impacted, and it just feels like gaming has somewhat come to a halt. Not come to a halt, but has sort of slowed down a bit. Like, games are still coming out. The Last of Us 2 released last week and or this week, and that's a huge game. Yeah, I'd say the disaggregation of it all is probably what is most noticeable, particularly, again, as an Aussie who's, who's not going to be physically at E3 most, most of the time or at these events in the US. Uh, so that physical element's not necessarily a big hit yet. But yeah, you're right. Having it sort of spread out, like, you know, we've had, as you said, we had, I think, a Microsoft event, which was just third-party stuff in, in May. Uh, we've had a couple of, you know, Jeff Keighley world exclusives around then, uh, combined with a PS5 reveal probably two weeks ago, and um, then a couple of other sort of E3-like events, like PC gaming show, and I think tomorrow we've got uh, EA Live, uh, and then Ubisoft next month. Uh, by, by spreading it all out, while it, it's kind of good because it means each week you've got something interesting to look at, uh, it definitely takes a bit of the wind out of it of having that one week that you're like, I'm, you know, as you said, making the time for it, taking the time off work or or just, you know, moving other parts of life around it to, to really fit in and, and make that the week that we all get to celebrate together, which was, I think, what sort of the joy of E3 where it's like, yeah, no matter what you like, your company is announcing something this week, the one that you, the ones that you're a fan of. And we could all sort of celebrate together in, in ideally <laughs> that good new games that we care about are coming out. Whereas now it feels like, you know, two weeks ago, if you're a big Sony fan, you know, that was your week. You know, last night was my <laughs> my, my week with a with Pokemon Snap and um, new Pokemon games. Last night was your year, I think, Zach, or your, your, your decade even. Yeah, we're not going to lie. The, that was a very exciting moment. Yeah. Uh, but even then, it's like, you know, had that been an E3 press conference, we might have been on a voice chat because we were like, oh, it's E3. Everyone's going to pay attention. And, and it's a lot of fun. We screamed together. Last night, I screamed by myself. I didn't know it was going to be this. Like, <laughs> I wasn't in a voice chat with anyone. Probably, in hindsight, maybe should have. But you just don't know because it's not E3. So it might not be that exciting. So you can't convince people to... Uh, not that it was that late, but you can't convince them to stay up, can't convince them to jump on Discord and 
and do a live watch with you, which was, you know, some of our, at least our, my fondest memories of um, the years we, <laughs> we've covered E3 or, or watched E3 as, as a bit of a group on another castle. Well, don't scream too loudly, Zach. You'll scare off the Pokemon. You're exactly right, because one of my favourite memories of E3 was 2015, where on an- the Another Castle t- crew, we decided to do a live stream for reactions for the E3 press conference, and I believe it was on the Tuesday night into Wednesday morning when there was about four conferences in a row spread out between sort of three, two to three hours between conferences, and we decided to just pull all nighter, and there were some great conversations had and some real shenanigans, so I think... I think we talked over all the conferences and there were some bizarre comments we made. I, I think I have the recording somewhere about Microsoft, I, I guess our dub of the Microsoft conference where we just took the absolute piss out of the entire thing. It was it was great fun. And I think that's what's missing this year. And honestly, I think that's one of my issues with online packs and whether it's going to be as successful as the actual event. Because my belief is, as we mentioned earlier, PAX is very community-based, it's very audience base a big part of PAX is going there and communicating with people you know hanging out with friends meeting new ones over 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 some obscure board game you've never heard of before and it's not going to have that yes there will be some game demos online you can have a go at you might be able to get together with friends or a chat group and talk about it and hang out that way but it's all a bit hollow to me and honestly it's one of my main things with Yes, there's a big digital component to gaming, but it's really that physical face-to-face interaction that I think is important, which might sound counterintuitive when we're in a hobby where often it's sitting in a basement with the lights off playing a JRPG, as Yamamuchi used to bemoan the genre, but that, that interaction is very important to me, and I think it is to you as well. And I don't know what you think of PAX as an online event, since you've been very deeply involved in PAX from a planning level well more than i since you're involved in in the event running yeah and i'll quickly take that opportunity just to, as a disclosure element yes i i've been an enforcer which previously say those are the the volunteers that work the event in the in the yellow shirts in australia i think they wear blue and red in the various other packs uh depending on the theming uh and up until last year where we were actually uh given a pay for the weekend which was very very good um and very um good to see us you know in line now with the u.s paxes with that said uh i have no inside knowledge about pax online i pretty much hear about everything that's happening as the public does uh, and no involvement at this stage on anything behind the scenes with it uh, and similarly you know you don't have to trust me but i'm telling you honestly my involvement with pax is not going to affect how i'm expressing my opinion on, on the topic right now uh with that legal i don't know if that's legal but that disclaimer out the way uh, <laughs> uh cover my own ass zach's an enforcer if you get on his bad side he won't let you into packs next year just just a tip yeah, no i'll t- take in names and um yeah no i won't I'll, anyway uh, packs is a, a family we like to welcome people in um yeah look uh, not, you're right it's just not going to be the same i don't think anyone can pretend it will be uh i think even the showrunners know that i don't think anyone could think it'll be the same as what a a normal pax is like i mean the big theme for pax if you've ever been to one uh you would have seen the sign says like welcome home uh and if you haven't well now you know that's a big sign that's there and that's just got to do with the fact that there's a you're sort of welcomed into your, your your people your community your um your brethren it that's it feels like a type of homecoming because you it's like, it's like a reunion. You know, we've talked about in the last episode and 
a bit today about all these various places we met various gamers you know i ran a video games club then you were the treasurer for it as well um i worked retail in games and made a lot of friends there i have so many friends that play games and pax is kind of the weekend where even if it's only for five minutes i sort of bump into them and and get to say hello and how you been uh and did you check out you know final fantasy 7 remake or pokemon or whatever it might be that year that's the hot topic Come to my Senran Kagura pinball tournament. It's running tonight. Yeah, exactly. Come, We need to give out some medals. Uh, let us run a tournament and, uh, you know, whatever game you want. I think it was very fitting that that tournament was at night. At, yeah, and after hours. Sort of probably apt with the same sort of timing as the... Um, uh, they've had two years in a row now, those dating chat panels. Uh, not dating chat. Dating uh, sim panels, which, which get a bit... Um, less pg (laughs) um but yeah like and to say so to that end you know as you said the big appeal for a lot of us is is not just the games but the people uh not having the physical people there is a bit of a hit but i am excited to see what an online pax is particularly for nine days 24 7 or 24 9 as they said it's an interesting concept um and and the fact that they're talking about replicating things like the expo hall which i I can guess as to what that might be. I'm guessing game demos, but I'm not too sure. It, and all the elements of PAX in some sort of virtual way really fascinates me. Uh, and what I'm more keen to see is, even if this is not going to be a permanent fixture in the year, can they use this as a way to maybe flesh out the online component of PAX? Because I think for at least for the last few years, the panels at very minimum have been streamed, which is good. But what else can we do to make PAX Weekend feel a bit more like an event outside of, of you know, for those that aren't actually physically there? Uh, I think one of the coolest things was maybe two years ago when uh, Pokemon Go uh, had the PAX unknowns available in Melbourne around most of the Melbourne CBD. So I had, you know, friends and one of my friend's mums even who plays Pokemon Go religiously, not going to PAX, doesn't care about PAX, but still kind of knows it's PAX weekend because she's out there getting PA and X on, on, on an unknown. And that's really cool, I think, to sort of extend it in a, in a way outside of the convention hall and bring a little taste of uh, of what we are experiencing inside to people that, that maybe can't get there because they're not in you know a city where PAX is, or in this case, Melbourne, because it's not PAX Oz, or, or maybe, you know, for other reasons like, you know, disabilities or whatever, PAX might not be something that's they can get to um so that's 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 the only thing i can hope to see in in a long running where where packs online and similar online events may have some some benefit i suppose uh like for example how good would it be if next year's e3 we finally get the thing that everyone's been saying should happen which is put the demos <laughs> online give them to to download um to, to just everyone uh, i don't think they'll ever do everything that then let us try everything but even some things that would make you know e3 week even that little bit more exciting right if you could download a demo for a game that you're not going to actually get to play for uh, a few months uh, you know christmas time that's that's the kind of stuff i'm hoping we learn from these online events and and don't and the lesson isn't oh we can just replace our entire marketing spend with online stuff and that's actually good enough uh, as, as a company and i don't need to go to physical events anymore which turn out to be a waste of money because my you know game still sold x million copies day one well exactly but 
So do you think there will be a future where we will have less physical events? Because I, I for one, hope not, because I think there is something to be said for having physical events, having a live crowd for press conferences and being able to go in person and play a game and play a demo, whereas if we did go to an all-online future, it would be a lot more hollow, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you might see some consolidation. I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I, in my mind, uh, yeah, I think we'll see a mix, to be honest, Brendan. I mean, we sort of touched on it, but for example, E3 in and of itself had already seen a bit of degradation in terms of what companies were physically going to the event over the past few years to demo their games. Uh, and while things like PAX haven't suffered to that extent, uh, I think you'll find there will be some companies that say, this is not for us anymore. These physical events, they're just too expensive and, and don't add the value to us. But I don't think the events themselves will go away. I think there is definitely value for a good number of not only big publishers, but also, as we said before, the indies in particular to having these exist. And as long as there's a, a commercial argument for why you want to, you know, run a, a gaming show or a convention uh, and that it sort of works well for all parties, I, I think they will continue. I, I don't think demand's going to go away. And if anything, you might see a bit of pent-up demand next year in 2021 or if it's not 21, then we can sort of revert back to pre-COVID levels of social distancing and uh ohs from that perspective uh whenever it is 2022 there might even be yeah pent-up demand of people like i want to go to a big event with people i haven't been to one for you know a year and a half two years i'm, I'm keen to- give me your germs now yeah let's let's spread them germs let's um let's get i want to be in a line i want to line up for something i haven't had to line up for anything for for, for, year, for months now <laughs> um no it won't be like that but i, I think you know we realize there is a irreplaceable novelty to that is just never going to be replicated online uh for better or worse maybe one day when we get to like you know matrix level virtual reality maybe then we can have a um a truly only online sort of digital event that equates to these but that's you know i think we're at least a decade away from anything of that level yeah i just had an interesting thought that maybe what could happen in the future is all your big boys, your Activisions, EAs, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, they purely go online and do whatever, maybe online demos and online conferences as Nintendo already does through Nintendo Directs. And your events like maybe not E3, but your PAXs very much become, I guess, a domain for indie developers and sort of an indie expo. And maybe it'll be smaller and not have as big of a draw card as they do at the moment. But I very much think that it would survive in physical form because those indies very much need the exposure those events give them to actually get out there and have a voice and attract people that might buy their game and might tell their friends mate you need to play this game you need to buy this game and without those events they don't have that and it's very hard for them to survive in a in a social media world where there's indie games coming out every week and you can't really stand out otherwise unless you get sort of you, you trend and there's very favorable reviews and you sort of build up steam that way. Yeah, and I guess the other thing just to quickly or to touch on, I know I joked about why not just put the demos online and we, we are sort of seeing that with some games, I think even this week with the Steam uh, Gaming Festival. But creating a game demo 
is first off hard and second off you're probably going to stuff it up particularly if you're an indie and you don't have a lot of resources uh, and it won't be you know perfectly polished and there'll be some bugs and that's a lot easier to deal with at a convention where you, you, you sort of in person can explain it away i think people are a bit more sympathetic and also i mean i've seen indie developers literally fix bugs on the fly at some of these things right like they pull out the laptop oh there's the issue try it again now uh which is very impressive what if you had to release it on psn or xbox live or steam or or nintendo online (laughs) that's never going to happen but you know (laughs) we could pretend um it's going to be locked it is what it is and if you've put a really horrible bug or a really crappy demo up you just don't get that opportunity to to save face and and turn or turn it around and could be the death of your of your game before it even comes out so there's definitely that appeal of the you know slightly smaller audience you know not global just whoever attends the show uh you speak to them in person you get their feedback you can fix bugs again during that weekend, even just day to day, you know, finish the show, go home. You've written down all the errors that people have found during the show and you try and reduce as many of them as possible. Uh, that type of, it's basically free QA in, in some regards, not not quite the same because people tend to be pretty polite and not give you fully honest feedback, but uh, you still get that, that feedback that you need as a, as a developer, like particularly an indie developer, to be able to improve and, and fix your game and see if you're heading in that right direction because you might be locked up in your, your personal home office for, for months making this game and you just don't know what anyone else thinks about it or you know that your mum thinks it's great but what does mum know i don't know maybe not a lot uh, <laughs> <laughs> mum says everything's great doesn't she yeah exactly um i think that and the only game my mum can critique is if it's a, if you're making an animal crossing uh you know competitor you know get my mum on qa but outside of that she's probably not got too many <laughs> opinions at all <laughs> but yeah it's definitely it's been an interesting i mean look everything's been interesting in 2020 but it's it's this game coverage this game industry is is definitely it's different it's different this year and i think there'll be some good things as i said that's the some good online experiences will continue forward, and I think that's a positive. Uh, again, just even from an accessibility standpoint, but I, I really hope, and I, you know, pray in some respects that it's not the end of the traditional, you know, convention, the traditional Gamescoms, E3s, Paxes of the world. I hope they still exist when, in some fashion, even if we have to stand four meters apart, and there's less people at the venues because of that. I, I hope they do make a return if not next year, the year after, because I'm keen to go to one again. (laughs) I am too. It'll be so good to get back to one, won't it? I guess before we wrap up this podcast, we're getting towards the time where people start shouting at us to get off their lawns, get off the airwaves. So what's your favourite E3 memory, if you'd have to pick one, not not just the one you went to, but in general, since it is June and E3's on everyone's mind? Yeah, that's a great one. I think... Oh, it's a very great one. It might just be that E3 2010 it would have been, which was a very good E3. Again, full context, said it many times, big Nintendo fan. Uh, and that was a cracker year for Nintendo. As we said 3DS, Skyward Sword, Donkey Kong Country Returns, uh, I think Kirby's Epic Yarn, uh, Kid Icarus, obviously, for 3DS. Like, just a lot of good stuff as a, as a fan of Nintendo games. And 
that was also my VCE year. And I remember just you know, trying to get away with watching as much as I can, even though I think I had a SAC, which is the type of test for those who don't um, study in Victoria uh, that you need to do for your final sort of grading. Uh, that week, I think it might have been English. Maybe I'm wrong. Or no, it was, it was maths. It was a maths one. But staying up still stupid hours and chatting with, with people on like Aussie Nintendo. It might have been another castle. Well, 2010, probably Aussie Nintendo. Either way, um, people there, other forums, game trailers forums. That year was just such a such a fun year. And even going to school the next day and talking with um, my gamer friends like, oh, did you see, you know, this was announced last night, blah, blah, blah. That that's a really just that's a really standout E three for me because of just quality games, um, quality discussion with people online, and, and probably really solidified like it, you know that year like well, that was the year I should have skipped E three because it was year twelve, uh, and the fact that I didn't I think really solidified in my mind it's it's an event that I'm probably always going to tune in for uh, as long as it remains you know at least somewhat relevant to to games and the industry at large i really get that because i think my favorite memory well the memory that really sticks to my mind at the moment is e3 2011 i think earlier in this episode i mentioned that that's the first e3 i remember watching and i think i should qualify with that is that that was the very first e3 i watched live i remember staying up late into the hours of the morning watching nintendo's conference because that was the year the Wii U was announced and I very much wanted to see what the Wii U was going to be about and I must say I was pretty hyped for the Wii U. Hindsight's great isn't it? Though I will defend the Wii U until <laughs> I die but that I think that's another episode but I just remember watching the Wii U coverage. Luigi's Mansion 2 was announced and but I can't really remember any of the other games. What I do remember is going on online forums like Nintendo World Report, Aussie Nintendo and talking to people about it and I might have been in a live chat or two as well and just communicating with people about what we saw and what we experienced. That's that's really at its essence what gaming culture is about to me. What what the what being more than just a gamer playing on your own is is talking to other people about your experiences and ultimately it's why I had tried my hand at video game journalism, writing reviews, writing articles and why I wanted to start this podcast and it's just great that we've had the opportunity to do so, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think the key takeaway, if anything, and tell me if you disagree, I think we're more passionate about the community at large and, and the people than we are about the games in many respects. That's that's what I've learned over the years, and I think that's that's fair to say. I think in a way, yes. Personally, there's still some aspects of gaming that I find very relaxing and very, I guess, meditative in a way, and it's a great way to... Um, de-stress and just tune out for a little while and I'm sure this will be a topic for another episode but at the end of the day talking to people about a game and getting a recommendation of hey mate you really need to play this game you go play it and then you go back to them and say oh that was fantastic this part of the game was really good and you have that discourse and it it does make it a social experience I know I'm stressing this a lot and I'm sounding like a broken record but even solo gaming is social if you want it to be social. And I think that is a fantastic part of the medium and the hobby. Yeah, and no, I definitely agree. And let's just hope that maybe through this uh, this little venture that we've embarked on that 
uh, we get to engage with some of you guys. And it's probably a good time to, to have that sort of call to action and sort of wrap things up. You're hopefully finding this through some social media channel, uh, whether that be our Twitter uh, or just our own, you know, we've posted it somewhere and you know us, so you've clicked the link, which is statistically the most likely um, listener right now. Um, so wherever you found this, leave a comment, you know, reach out to us. Uh, you know, our email is blowingcartridge at gmail.com if you want to send an email. Uh, Twitter, blowingcartridge at, is it just at, is that what it is? At blowingcartridge? Our Twitter is at blowcartridge. Sorry, our Twitter is at Blowcart Podcast. We will get used to this, I swear. Um, yeah, let us know. Did we do good? Did we do bad? Are you happy our mics are a bit better than last week? Because <laughs> they definitely are. Um, I don't know if they're perfect, but I'm already looking at my wavelengths and they're much better than they used to be. You know, let us know. And, and also, what are, what are your favorite sort of E3 packs, other gaming convention memories? Just let us know. We're curious to hear. Uh, and hopefully we'll find a way to engage with you in some fashion on those those topics as well so other than that i think we're pretty much done brendan uh do you want to let the listeners know if they wanted to reach out to you directly what's the what's the best way to do it so if you want to reach out to me and follow my thoughts about my current playthrough is xenoblade chronicles definitive edition which i'm sure you don't go to at tamazoid on twitter and similarly, if you want to hear me uh, scream, or not hear me, but see typing that suggests I'm screaming about, say, a Pokemon Snap trailer or uh, whatever's next for maybe Banjo 3 at Microsoft's event, that would be fantastic. Make it happen. Uh, you can follow me at, at @eggarino. that's at E-G-G-E-R-I-N-O on Twitter. Well, I've been Brendan. Thanks for listening. This is Zach, tuning out. See you next week, guys. No, wait, two weeks. See you in two weeks. He swapped, I remember now.